Well, boys, looks like you started the fun without me. You're all sick. Every last one of you. We're going to need a bigger gun. What's the matter? You scared of things that go boom? My name is Eric, and joining us today on Double Feature with 5% Battery is Michael Kester. That's right, 5% Battery. All spooky month, I'm going to be on 5% Battery. Oh, hey, look, it's October. How did that happen? You know, time just keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, speaking of time... We have got some old shows today. That's right. Today in our in our <laughs> very last minute, but honestly, very inventive. This has been a good exercise. For October, we're doing, there's four weeks in October, they say, and we're doing something old, <laughs> something the new. the calendar app. <laughs> something borrowed and something blue, one per week. But it has presented a very, very, very healthy challenge for us, which is to figure out how to do a pair based on an utterly arbitrary like idea and how to be creative with it. So today we're covering the Hunchback of Notre Dame and we're pairing that with Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. One of these movies is, by all arguments, old. For sure, very old movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1923, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Lon Chaney Jr.'s dad, Lon Chaney. And then we're pairing that with uh, with whatever happened to Baby Jane, which by some accounts, but not all, is in fact also old, but uh, deals more with old age. You know, it's about aging. It's about losing your youth. So, like, I just want to come on here and just talk about how fucking good we are at putting two movies together. It feels, you know, um, ABCs of Death, where they go, your letter is T, and it's T for trip. Yeah, And then you have to figure out, okay, well, what sort of convoluted thing can I do for T for trip? But I feel like it's been a really good exercise. Wait until you hear what we have next week. Uh, It's just like we're coming up with better pairs than we would have if we didn't do this sort of arbitrary nonsense. So I've decided that from now on, on patreon.com forward slash double feature, instead of picking movies, you're just going to send us random words that come to mind and we'll (laughs) do a pair based on that theory. Instead of you being like, oh, do Kurosawa. We'll just be like, do shoes. And we'll be like, all right, here comes a shoe pair. I, I see you're reading the Kurosawa messages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Do a shoe pair. We'll do Dead Man's Shoes. And we'll pair that with the Pixar movie Shoes. Yeah, well, I was excited to do something uh, that's a, honestly a lot older than most of the stuff I see. And I also think, you know, whatever happened to Baby Jane has been on my on my to watch list for a long time, and so I was excited to see it. But I really liked how these weren't. It wasn't just as simple as do okay. Hunchback of Notre Dame is old. Great, do another movie that's even older. There, boom, done. Mm-hmm. And so you know, we could have picked two movies from the the nineteen twenties or something and been done with it, but. I thought it was kind of cool that we we not only landed on a movie with Baby Jane that is, it is an older movie, but it's also about an even older era mm-hmm. and sort of the problem of age in uh, as kind of an angle too. All very cool things. The only thing I ever promise anybody on the show is that we're pretty fucking good at pairing movies. 
And I will brag on literally nothing else. Literally <laughs> anything else you want other than people pairing two movies, probably find another show. But we're glad you're here. And to remind you, that was patreon.com forward slash double feature. That's, <laughs> we're glad you're here. You're glad we're here. We'd like to keep being here. Patreon.com forward slash double feature. Help us make it through October. An earlier version of ourselves would also say that we were really good at spoiling movies, but we have since proven that to also be false. Yeah. So. Yeah. Now we're good at loglining. No, actually, let's not give us too much credit. We're definitely not good pairing, at loglining. Pairing movies, movies. That's all you get. Welcome to Double Feature. So happy you joined us. Yeah. So we'll start with The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and then we can do whatever happened to Baby Jane second, sort of. Perfect. Look at the awesome. whole evolving era of, you know. Yeah. But this, uh, your first thought was, hey, let's do the 1911 version yeah. of this movie. Which is like the oldest horror movie ever made. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's like the French invented cinema, man. It's, right. it's uh, right. 26 minutes, pure 26 minutes of, uh, yeah. of Hunchback. But it actually, and actually what's, What's interesting about that one is they did see it in the U.S., which didn't always happen back then. Mm -hmm. You know, it was pretty rare that you would get foreign movies coming over here. Sure. But, um, I mean, every every fucking country claims to have invented... Well, because of the regions, right? Like, it's region two in France, and it was region one <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, that's why. No, well, I mean, for the <laughs> longest time, we just, we blocked out foreign cinema. We were like, you don't need to go to France to see The Hunchback of Notre Dame. We, sure. we have that right here. Yeah. They basically had, like, a Netflix queue, <laughs> and then they were just like, oh, you want to see The Hunchback? Let me let me just, um, we'll check, check in the back of the store and get that. Mm. And they were like, quick film an entire movie called The Hunchback of Notre Dame and pretend it is in Paris. Reminds me of that, that meme where it's like, me, mom, I want to see The Guilty. Mom, we have The Guilty at home. And then it's like The Guilty at home is Jake Gyllenhaal. That is kind of it. Like, oh no, yeah. Americans want to see movies from Paris. Quick, <laughs> make movies based in Paris and maybe they won't notice. And you know, like we don't have to get into it now, but it is... Uh, some people argue that England actually invented cinema. I don't know if you know about this, but what we're talking about extremely old stuff. They invented white people. I have heard people in New York argue, because we had, what was it called? Like the Vitascope or whatever the fuck in the 1800s. Uh-huh. The like picture show basically yeah. intense. Yeah, no, I've played Red Dead Redemption. Yeah. Oh, do they? Ha I don't remember that. There's like a penny theater in one of the towns oh, that's using God. the Vitascope. Yeah. Yeah, but we are talking about cinema. I'm, you know, we're talking about 100-year-old cinema. Yeah. Pretty fucking crazy. It's super dope. And it's one of those things, you know, when you talk about a movie from the 20s, you know, the one that always comes to mind because I've seen it the most is Nosferatu. It used to be an annual thing to go see Nosferatu at the Draft House around Halloween. They had live bands accompanying it, which was always dope. But when you think about a movie from the 20s and you think about, you know, there's this thing um, that everybody talks about in in the history of film, you know, the difference between a silent film and a talkie, right? Which is a movie where like there's recorded um, audio, vocal audio, lines and, and dialogue and such. But I always forget that like, I don't know why in my brain I can't like commit this to memory, but like silent doesn't mean silent. It just means no talking. Oh, sure. You know, like the, it, it's almost, you know, it's just, a, it's a movie that's all score. I guess it doesn't have like Foley 
but it does have bells. Well, this, like, I don't know. Yeah, it's, this had a little bit of it. Yeah. You know, you had some crowds of people clamoring. You had mm-hmm. a little whip sound. Yeah. They sell a lot of the effects like in between edits. You know, it's sort of like someone raises a whip, there's a sound, and then you see, yeah. you know, Quasimodo got whipped. Yeah. I don't know if they do that to avoid the violence or like what exactly is going on there. It's crazy to watch this movie because if you were to remove the title cards, which is definitely the thing that dates this movie the most, is the fact that there's like those dialogue cards that tell you what. It's just amazing to me that, you know, we'll watch a movie on double feature like The Tribe, Mm. which anybody who wasn't with us at that time patreon.com forward slash double feature. It's this like movie that's all deaf people and there's no dialogue and there's no subtitles and it's not American or spoken and you just have to figure out what's going on by watching it. That's just how the movie is. That's what it is and it's great. But it's crazy that you can have a movie like The Tribe nowadays and it's like, eh, if people don't know what we're saying, like, fuck them, that's not what we're doing. But in like 1923, they're like, if we don't hand write everything the characters are meant to have said, how will anybody know that he's ringing a bell? Yeah, it is really funny. Even the, uh, you get like inner titles telling you what's happening and then also introducing the character and going, by the way, that's Lon Chaney. Yeah. <laughs> hey, check this guy out. That's Lon Chaney. And I thought maybe that was the makeup, but they do it with the um, the actress who put, what's her name? Esmeralda. Esmeralda. Is that yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. They do it with her too. And I'm like, oh, I guess this is just how we're doing titles here. But yeah, also the style of acting is very strange from back then because it was like there wasn't a lot of room for uh, how does this make you feel or an interpretation mm-hmm. of sure. really a lot of the stuff we look for with acting right now, which is connect us to the human being. Instead, it was like, what's happening in this beat of the story? Sure. Play that beat. Yeah. So, you know, it's sort of like you've been caught and then what does the actor do? It makes like a caught face. Mm-hmm. Oh, we need to go over there. Well, I guess I'll make a go over there gesture. And so everything played really, really big in that way, which... Uh, yeah, it was just the fucking style back then. But the other thing, you and I were talking about this a little off the show that I think is uh, probably worth mentioning because of the era is, you know, we've been talking on the journey with the uh, the Grindhouse side of it, the exploitation films, about uh, our shorthands kind of been like, these fucking movies were shown in tents, you know? Right, right. And really thinking about the state of exhibition, I thought... Hunchback would be a cool moment to talk about that too because we had these things. I'm going to send you a picture, by the way, so you can just enjoy this. Okay. And then I'll uh, try to remember to put it on the um, on the website. Whoa, I think you sent me the wrong picture, man. Uh. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> but yeah, you and I were talking about these things called movie palaces. Yep. And these, uh, you know, they started around this time you know, 1910 till uh, like TV, basically 1940, something like that. So that is the hunchback portion of the show today. But what was fucking crazy to think about is that the position that movies existed, it's not just, oh, broad because it's like early cinema or they didn't know the craft or whatever, but the entire purpose of a movie back then, I mean, so... Basically, what a movie palace is, is a very fancy building where they showed movies and it held like 3,000 fucking people. 
So it would be, you know, a single screen and, you know, three, four, five, six thousand people. Right. Some of them, uh, I mean, they, they might have even held more than that. I don't know what the biggest one was, but I've definitely seen some that held six thousand people. So I sent you this picture. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew this, but you and I have actually walked by, walked right under the marquee of a movie palace like a million times. That's crazy. We Did you know this same movie palace that you're about to reveal uh, is now the Double Door? Oh no, I didn't know that. Yeah, the Double Door moved. Well, yeah, so we basically recorded the show. We might as well have recorded it inside this fucking building. I don't think they were doing anything with it. They weren't. They weren't until now. Crazy. In uptown Chicago existed one of these movie palaces. And these basically, not only do they not exist anymore, really, but uh, even the buildings that they were in, some got like repurposed as churches Mm -hmm. or, you know, really the the only thing I've ever heard them still existing as as churches. Sure. But eventually you could no longer get 5,000 people to sit and watch The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And so just thinking about like, we complain about big budget cinema today and how simplistic it has to be to play to such a wide audience. But imagine if a single screen, like 5,000 fucking people were going to come to it. You know, it basically just has to be like a dog chasing a stick. I'm not, I'm not sure <laughs> how you try to like film a movie and go, this will play equally across an audience of this many people. Right. Is insane. Unless it's Avatar 2. Yeah. Well, even that, man. Even that, I'm, <laughs> I'm like, is this, I'm this has to read for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that's one of the things that makes this movie crazy is it's a hundred years old, but it's also, remember a period movie right because it's like right which is just the best i think it's set in the medieval time it's so funny it's so funny because like the existence of this movie takes place in an in an era that's its own period movie and then (laughs) it's like yeah but this we're not we're not concerned with the boring doldrums of the roaring 20s we'd much rather point our cameras at Medieval France. Well, yeah, it's it's literally we have another movie on the show that treats the period of this movie like another period. Yeah. <laughs> and this movie is like, uh-huh, the medieval period. And I think we're getting to the point where it's difficult for me. Like, I do catch myself in moments watching this where I'm just like, oh, yeah, it's 1911. What must this? Okay, they're in like a movie palace maybe watching this. And then they took horses everywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wore armor and they rang a bell. I'm like, oh, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Some of this is period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what right. we're doing here. And then they all just went outside and waved their torches around. It's like, whoa, trains existed, yeah. you know? Sure. <laughs> like, let's, let's get a couple yeah, things Yeah, they waved their here. torches from the trains, Eric. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, so the thing that I really wanted to talk to you about as far as the story goes. All right, we're going to we're going to logline the hunchback of Notre Dame. Okay. What are we doing here? There's a hunchback, he lives in Notre Dame. He rings the bells over high over Paris and longs to be normal, but he's like fucking ugly as shit. And then like he super cool parkours down and falls in love with a traveling woman she's a gypsy but you can't say that anymore uh you can't say anything from this movie anymore <laughs> the entire notion of this this is a you hard can't say lot you can't say lon cheney without specifying senior that's for sure yeah so what, what's tricky about this is uh, like 
trying to describe exactly what the movie is is not entirely the story it's telling us. And then also there are parts of it that are just like, it almost even feels weird today to just be like, we took the town's ugliest man and forced him to live in the bell tower. Sure. And you're like, well, well, damn, Michael, that's not very woke. Mm-hmm. You know, if you did that today, you can't. Right. You know, they could never get away with taking the town's ugliest man and forcing him to live in a bell tower today. It's no. It's just not. They rarely do that. So I think the the thing that I want to talk to you about was the point of view of the movie and trying to get to the bottom, if we even can. You know, there's all these different tellings of this story. There is uh, the novels from like the 1830s. And so then cinema comes along and tells this story, I don't know, 10 different times or what the fuck ever now, countless times. And uh, I think Disney even made a sequel to their version of this. So there's like a lot of, yeah, wild, right? So there's a lot of hunchback floating around out there. But the way that this movie tells us the story, I'm trying to figure out who exactly is the protagonist and who... Like, we're probably supposed to identify with the hunchback. Is that debatable or is that... He is the title character. Right? So, like, we go to the movie and we no, go, I like... Think, I think there's a little hunchback in all of us. Okay, yeah. that's what I thought. That's what I thought. Yeah. So we... And, you know, part of what makes me think that is also, as we've talked about the old monster movies, it was so much more transparent back then. Like, the audience... I don't know if this was just, like, what was in at the time, but... Oh, the Wolfman's coming out? Oh, the audience is going to identify with the Wolfman. Way to pick Wolfman. Very proud of you. Frankenstein's coming out. Oh, the Let's audience will Wolfman. <laughs> identify with Frankenstein's monster. You know, but yeah, but I mean, I think a lot of the monster movies that came out, we were sort of going like, we're the monster and society is, mm-hmm. you know. Sure. We're the creature and society is the true monster. Society is judging us for, for being a hunchback. Yeah, so I look at the hunchback of Notre Dame the same way. I go, okay, so we're supposed to go, this is an underdog movie, right? This is about an outsider. Mm -hmm. But does that make, so by that logic, does that mean every fucking person in this city is awful and the dude who lives in the tower is like the only good human? Think of this the way you thought of high school. So everyone was awful? You know how everyone at your high school was (laughs) was a vapid idiot? Yeah. And you were like the one true freak that nobody understood. Uh-huh. And then like you went out and found the other one true freak from their respective Notre Dame. And then suddenly there were like 11 hunchbacks and they all went to the mall. Right. Surrounded by the other fucking awful pieces of society. And then you like met a few other hunchbacks who worked at like the gaming store at the mall. And then you like kind of like started dating a hunchback who was your server at the diner. And like basically my point is everybody thinks that they're, especially at a certain time, I feel like people all feel maybe not like everyone in society is terrible, but certainly that everyone in society does not understand them and couldn't possibly ever be of the same cloth. That's why I brought up the fucking movie palace. Right. Because I'm sitting here going like, okay. Surrounded by 5,000 hunchbacks all going, I'm the true hunchback. I'm over here like working in the film industry, dressing like the goth kid from high school, you know, my mid thirties. 
and going like, oh, okay, so I, I like work with a lot of these New York punk people now and everybody's like an outsider. But then I'm thinking this was playing in a room where 4,000 other people thought that they were that person. Yeah. And that's just, uh, I mean, I guess that's, a, it's not an impossible idea. That's the whole concept of a, an underdog movie, I guess. But it is just a little crazy to think about. I mean, I, I the older I get, it makes me sad to realize, but like everybody thinks that they're the outsider. Everyone though? I mean, the, the really, quarterback of the football team thought he was an outsider. Like, yeah, no, that's what I mean. Like, because I think, I think that, I think that by like, you know, you're you're confusing outsiders with unpopular people, and I don't think that's the same. I think that you know, from the it, to to extend the high school metaphor, there were the popular kids and there were the unpopular kids, but the popular kids were just better looking hunchbacks. Quasimodo was crowned king of the fools so you know that's great you know i think that the football team is just better looking hunchbacks and to us the freaks who thought that they were idiots i would have banished the captain of the football team to the top of the tower because he sucked and he was an idiot you know like we are we are the townspeople and we are the hunchback the one thing we aren't is fucking esmeralda that's what nobody's doing yeah no one's really doing that in this movie either I'm that's, telling you, that's, that's what's really funny. Esmeralda to me about, is the ivory tower of society. You never get to fuck Esmeralda. You're always punching up. That's the weird thing about this movie is it sort of starts and it goes, oh, you want to see a movie about the hunchback, right? Because you feel misunderstood, right? And this is something mm-hmm. we have in all of us. We've all felt like the world's against us at times. You're like, great. And you sit down, and you start watching, and it's like, this guy lives in a tower. Anyways, what's Esmeralda up to? Let's follow her around for yeah, a while. Right. Let's not pay attention to this guy. He's ugly and he's lame and he's stuck in a tower. But check out this hot chick. <laughs> right. That is society in a nutshell. That still exists today, a hundred years later. You know, it's how many times are you going to fucking put Willem Dafoe in the movie and then just focus on his love interest? I'm I'm sorry. There, there could have been a hunchback of Notre Dame with Willem Dafoe and we just didn't make that. That's what I'm telling you. Yeah, in my mind, I was like, that is such an obvious thing to do. Someone someone must have done it already, right? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, Abel Ferrara dragged Willem Dafoe through Siberia for a movie. They couldn't have put him in a bell tower for one scene. I think the closest we have is the lighthouse. Okay, that's he doesn't yeah, yeah, fuck yeah, Robert yeah. Pattinson either. That's pretty no lighthouse spoilers on here. Please. Come on. Let me have my head cannon, okay? You just stay away from that. Yeah, so that's all right. So we've we've hit on some of our themes with this movie. We I do also think actually speaking of Esmeralda, there is something that still rings true. Uh, pardon the fucking pun. A hundred years later, that is like this woman's trying to go through this movie, and she's got like literally fifteen goddamn suitors in the movie. Mm-hmm. Every time she turns a corner, somebody's like, "Let me read you a poem." She's like, yeah. "I I don't know. I don't know if I have time." Uh, ride my horse. No, I, I don't know if I have time. Check out the sword. Nope. No, hold on. I, I, I'm trying There's to... definitely a part of society that identifies with Esmeralda. Yeah. Esmeralda's just going through life getting fucking the 1830s version of dick pics all day long. Yeah, it's it's uh, <laughs> catcalling, basically. I like dick pics better. Unsolicited <laughs> dick pics yep. in the 1830s. Yeah. Except- Can you imagine like how long you would have to expose to a tin type to be able to like <laughs> hand an unsolicited dick pic to Esmeralda? I feel like that's a handcrafted joke just for me. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, we need to get this Patreon up so we can uh, make this a reality. Where there's <laughs> clearly a, a line of experiments that, that need to be, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you like that. Yeah, but also her life is on the line, mm-hmm. right? So she's going to be hanged for what is, you know, to my mind, I mean, it's it's hard to watch these movies and like you do get wrapped up in them, but it's almost impossible, I find, to watch anything from 1920 that isn't supposed to be funny and not still laugh anyways. Mm-hmm. There is just part of it that's like, she's sitting on a bench with this guy and a dude pokes out, stabs him, and then sneaks back behind the bush and another dude walks out from the other side and is like, hey, I see what's going on here. <laughs> Off to jail. Uh, I just, like, I, I genuinely uh, laughed. It made me very happy and it's probably not supposed to, but it doesn't fucking matter. I feel like we were supposed to talk about, like, the makeup and the sets and how big everything is, but... Oh, there's there's plenty of makeup in the next movie. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So funny. You're just on today. You're on. Actually, um, see the, uh, if you are on the Patreon, not to keep hitting the fucking Patreon, but our everything we said in the Bride of Frankenstein episode probably applies here. But again, we're talking, we're talking huge movies. We're talking makeup and sets and a lot of, uh, a lot of really paying attention to this stuff in a gigantic way for a huge audience that, um, yeah, fuck it, fuck it. Talk about the next movie. <laughs> uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane? I I actually watched when I was like seven years old. Oh man, you were on this early. <laughs> um, I you know well that's like one of the things that, uh, I haven't mentioned it on the show in a long time. But like I've been into horror movies since I was like four. Yeah, and my mom grew up in the whatever happened to Baby Jane era, not the era that the movie. Well, the movie takes place over the course of like 50 years, but like when it came out, Doesn't right? the movie actually start the year after the pre... I think it starts in 1912. Yeah, I think it's something like that. Yeah. Genius. Genius pair, Michael. Um, starts but- the year after Hunchback, <laughs> uh, after the original yeah. uh, cinema Hunchback. But so so when I, was, when I was a young kid, about six or seven, I started asking my mom to show me scary movies. I wanted to see scary movies. And that I mentioned this on the Shining show because that was like very much the movie that like fucked my brain up because I was like eight. Uh-huh. But one of the first scary movies that my mom showed me was Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and I'm fucking seven. I don't get. It. I'm like, why are these old ladies scary? I don't understand. <laughs> Thinking now, let's just pause for a second. It's really funny that your mom's like, you know, it's really scary. Check out these old ladies. <laughs> I know. Well, that's, mom, you know, who, that's who must have been what age at the time, right? Like, I don't know, thirty, maybe, maybe early forties. All right, yeah. So what I think, um, I think Davis is like in her mid fifties in this movie. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. That's just sort of amusing to me. Yeah, they're younger than my mom now, but yes, it's funny. Yes. Yeah, because that's the thing is like my mom. She couldn't get there from where she was. Like she didn't understand that. Like the only thing I wanted was just show me gremlins and critters and ghoulies. Like that's what I wanted. Mm. I know that now. I know you know you can't put words to things as a child. I didn't know to ask my mom. Show me gremlins too. A new batch. You didn't know about subgenres yet at seven. Yeah. So instead, she she just showed me things that scared her, that made her feel uncomfortable. And one of them was this movie, and it's it's crazy because so so that said, right? It's that, such a like Rodney Dangerfield kind of reaction. Like, hey, you want to see something scary? Check out the Electric Bill. 
Yeah. <laughs> you want to see a scary movie? Look, this is where you're heading. Old. Um, but uh, so so that said, I haven't seen it since then, which I think makes this a very interesting conversation. Um. So this was my rewatch for the show. Was rewatching whatever happened to Baby Jane. All right, so and like I don't, understanding it. Yeah, I don't know how concise you do this as a logline because it involves different eras. But it's basically a former child star is now living out her uh, older years, 50s, whatever you want to call it, with her sister. She's kind of uh, gone a little bit psychotic. And her sister, oh, I guess you should mention the accident too, right? So, well, you also so you have to so you have a former the the two characters. It's important. Yeah. Uh, there's a former child star, and then uh, her sister, who was a movie star in her in her young adult life. Mm-hmm. Those are that's important factors. Yeah, and stops being a movie star after this car accident. Right. And now is wheelchair bound in the uh, lives on the second floor, which seems like a quite a choice it's a planning error yeah right but nothing nothing we could do now i mean we don't know how she got up there but she can't get down so right yeah if you want to set up your what are you going to do bring the second floor down to the first floor makes no sense there's literally nothing (laughs) that can be done so you know i i looked at the plot of this movie and sort of felt like so what are we doing here we're doing like maybe kind of a sunset boulevard thing is that it it's like the last you know, once Sunset Boulevard gets like really fucking crazy, mm-hmm. it's kind of like an extent. What if there's a horror movie of that scene? Right. Watching it, I felt a lot more like misery. There's a lot of that. So, yeah, it plays with that kind of, but what really I think is special about it in comparison to anything else you would, you would really look at is it lives in the sort of like captor scenario. Mm hmm. It lives in the manipulation and the really like day in and day out, you know, because we get the jump in time, it basically sets up their relationship, sets up like kind of important events that happened and then goes, look at the tense psychological push and pull of how these two people live together when one of them is, you know, we're, we're quick to find becoming more and more unhinged. I don't know. I feel like it's even twistier than that, right? Like, how do you place this in the sort of other 60s movies you've seen? Horror movies. I feel like it actually lives like pretty much on par with a lot of that stuff. Um, Well, that's what I mean, right? I I think, well, when you were describing like seeing it when you were younger, I'm thinking, oh, well, the biggest thing that would have kind of illustrated to me like what the fuck's going on in this movie is it lived in the same era as, you know, Alfred Hitchcock horror movies. Mm-hmm. Kind of important to like sort of sorting it, I guess. It definitely, it's definitely a movie. So it's funny because I was watching this movie going, you know, for the show, just being like, man, this is just really great. These performances are awesome. I love the way this looks. This plot is awesome. This woman is just like one of the most evil, like Nurse Ratched level evil villains in cinema. Mm. And I'm sitting there going, I'm just really glad that it's not one of these fucking 60s movies with like an unnecessary twist at the end <laughs> that just like, you know, suppose you didn't see that coming and it blows your mind. Like, who cares? You don't need that shit. What is this fucking 
M night Shyamalan, 19, 1955. Like who gives a shit? And then, you know, there's a big twist at the end and it turns out, you know, it turns out the evil villain, or I think it's supposed to endear you like, Oh my God, baby Jane. Oh, she was manipulated into feeding her crippled sister rats. No, she's awful. (laughs) Whether or not she hit her with the car, it doesn't fucking matter. They're just both shitty. All you learn is that they both suck. That's what you learn at the end. Sort of. I I might pull apart a little more nuance from it than that. But (laughs) yeah, I I suppose um, everybody sucks. Fuck this movie. Run away. (laughs) I learned how to do an ice cream dance. That's what I got out of it. Oh, yeah, that's true. You want to talk about the relatable part of this movie. Uh, you know, by the end of the movie, like I get it. I'm two steps away from doing an ice cream dance myself. Like I understand uh, where she's at. I think that this movie leaves just enough room for the sort of, um, I don't know, uh, not plausible deniability, but the kind of suspicion to come up where you don't really catch it going, oh, this is where they set up the twist they're going to pay off. Mm-hmm. You know, they. I think about, okay, scenes like when they argue about who bought the house and you sort of get this feeling, I mean, the very modern interpretation of this movie needs to invoke the term gaslighting pretty quick. But there is just this this kind of psychological manipulation between, maybe between the two of them, where they're going, ah, how, how you know, I basically, have you forgotten history? Let me remind you, this is how it happened, which is always kind of a weird way to, you know, implant your own worldview. And um, mm-hmm. it's imposing your own, you know, coming up with a worldview and trying to like get everybody to agree that that's how events took place. Right. And so they have a conversation about the house and who really paid for it. How do they really get here? Mm-hmm. And we don't really solve it in that scene, but, you know, you could you could read it different ways depending on how much you know about you know, how the movie ends up. And I think there's just enough of these that sort of like, in the moment it goes, oh, this is baby Jane being manipulative. And it might just go, oh, this is two characters having an argument. That's kind of like how all those scenes resolve. Mm -hmm. But I think you could go back and look at those scenes knowing the ending and kind of go like, who's manipulating who here? What really is the truth of a lot of these things? Because ultimately we don't get that. We glossed over, we had this title sequence that's just like really long staring at wreckage from a car. Mm-hmm. And then we find ourselves in this circumstance. So all we have is what we're told. Somebody goes, oh, this is how it is. And we just have to kind of kind of accept that. Right. So the story itself is, you know, we have this in the, in the 1910s, in this period we were talking about before, we have these movie palaces. We have these like, it's vaudeville basically, mm-hmm. you know, which is where a lot of this came from. It is big entertainment, uh, an evening of showcase, you know, entertainment. And then her sister becomes a star of film and these movies are shown and there's, there's uh, I don't know, there's kind of something we haven't really considered before on the show, I think, which is also like the birth of revival mm-hmm. or the birth of uh, of the repertory, really. Right. You know, when, whenever you and I talk about the era of TV coming along, 
what is it? It's always like, oh, why was CinemaScope invented? It was invented because TV came out and they needed to make the screen wide to entice people to go to the theater and be like, ooh, look at this fun thing. Why did they, you know, why did they make the screens longer? Why did they add this or that? Why, you know, surround sound? Mm -hmm. All these little gimmicks because TV was the big threat to movies. Fortunately, that never panned out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. But, you know, you see these echoes, of course, all the time, right? Yeah. Streaming is the big threat to cinemas. Mm -hmm. And so you constantly see where, like, certain gimmicks stuck and that became just a part of what a movie is. But we always talk about it in terms of, like, TV is the big villain and TV is what... Because I think there's this modern interpretation of, well, like, what is the story of what happened in film? The story is TV came along... And with such a threat, it changed movies forever. But what I never think about is like, it's kind of an, it's a cold war. Mm -hmm. It's like an ongoing battle between TV and movie theaters. Sort of a one-sided war, but yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think so. That's my point is like, I think, you know, and I don't know, I'm speculating here. So maybe, maybe people can write us and maybe they'll have a better understanding of this. Although I'm quickly uh, starting to feel like the oldest person in the room talking about movies, so I don't maybe maybe we're it's just the right like show the, for it. It's the right yeah, show for it. Yeah, we're the keepers of making up the history at this point. But okay, so TV comes out. What's the threat? The threat is you can watch the moving picture at home. We don't need to go to the theater. Mm-hmm. So theaters hit back, and theaters go. Oh, we got movies, but they're really wide now. Oh, look at all the stuff we're doing. Oh, this is a big deal. Color. Right? Technicolor. Mm-hmm. We talked about that on the um, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes Love Witch show. But what does TV do? TV goes, ah, but guess what? Those movies that you could only see once when they came out or when the theater brought it back, we're just going to play them in the middle of the afternoon now. We'll just play them in the evening. That's the beat of this movie that I went, oh, maybe there's something we're leaving out of the story. Because... Think about like her neighbor goes, oh, we, uh, mm-hmm. me and my husband just watched you in your movie from the other night. Yep. There is this whole movies on TV thing where I feel like television is going, well, what if we showed people movies that they just couldn't see anymore? Mm-hmm. We'll get the old movies while theaters are trying to show their new movies. Right. We'll appeal to nostalgia and go, those old movies you love, we got those now. Sure. You can see them in your house. And suddenly these stars who may have faded from the limelight, who um, who people just weren't thinking about anymore, who didn't have careers anymore, now their face is on TV and everybody's seeing them again. Right. And so suddenly they're getting, you know, like noticed at the supermarket when they weren't. Mm-hmm all because their movie happened to get broadcast on TV. It's just, uh, I don't know, it's a it's a thing I hadn't really thought about before, but I do remember a lot of these stories growing up too, of like the generations behind us, everybody would be talking about a movie because it went on TV. Right. Or actually, I've heard a lot of people talking about like, oh, how did this, in the 70s, this guy got cast in this project and nobody saw him for a while, and how did that happen? Well, they played his movie on TV and we saw it one night and I called my producer and said, oh, what mm-hmm. about this guy? And that's like how it happened. Right. Yeah. Well, and I also, you know, we, uh, well, we don't need to, I'm going to spare us a, uh, voluntarily spare us an invocation of Tarantino. 
But this is a very Tarantino kind sure. of thing, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, I already right? thought about it. He's too. watching his old reel. Robert Forster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Totally, totally. But I think that I I see that point, but I don't think that, I think that that fuels the ire of Baby Jane because nobody filmed Baby Jane doing her routine. A hundred percent. There weren't no cameras. A hundred percent. I mean, there were apparently cameras in 1911. Thanks, thanks, La Hunchback. But, uh... <laughs> You know, nobody was wrong, filming. She was in the wrong country. Yeah. Nobody was filming Baby Jane, so she doesn't get syndication. Also the wrong, you know, people in France would love uh, a 54-year-old woman singing letters to daddy. That would be a hit in France. I don't know. Sure. Wrong country for the revival, man. Yeah. Really what this comes down to is if if this movie was set in France, <laughs> the shoe would be on the other foot. It'd be whatever happened to Baby Jane's sister. You know what I mean? Yeah, so I, I think you're right. There is a, a level of this that's sort of, um, it asks you in the final moments of the film to consider, like if it's a 60 psychological horror movie, then like, okay, so what is the psychology of it? What's it trying to do? And I really like that it brings in the psychology as a twist because then it doesn't, it's not like a lot of the other movies of the era that uh, you watch them today and it just sort of reads like, why are they so obsessed with pop psychology? This saves a lot of its pop psychology for the twist. And so it's basically like, well, we all had fun here today with this movie. It's been great spending time with you. And we do ask you to consider what makes a monster. Good night, everyone. Yeah. And just kind of pieces out. And I, I think... You know, it's, I prefer being left with this idea of like, you've seen the story, you watch these people interact, you do have a new piece of information, but it just makes you think about the, the sort of pathos of what you've seen. Mm -hmm. This question basically of like, if she wasn't told at the end of the movie that she was the one who put her sister in a wheelchair, you know, if she had, well, that's the question they ask, right? Could they have been friends this whole time? Mm-hmm. And so I think the question is basically, was there a monster in there this whole time mm -hmm. that was really brought out by this event? Right. Or You're was, trying to Babadook this movie a little bit. How do you mean? Was there inherently someone, one of the two people, was there this inherent beast that would have eventually come out? Or oh, yeah, yeah, was, yeah. was there no Babadook to begin with? Yeah, because it could be about child stardom. You know, we see mm -hmm. her being a little spoiled when she's young. And I think the movie sets that up. It's kind of cool the way, you know, it sets that up. And because we see her being spoiled and then it cuts to her being an adult and being overbearing, we're kind of like, oh, so she's a fuck. She's a terrible person. Right. And we're going to watch her do bad things. Right. But I mean, just seeing somebody who's young in show business and spoiled so fucking what, man? <laughs> that doesn't mean they're going to grow up and basically like kidnap a person or no, starve them to death or whatever. It, it means literally nothing. Well, it does. Yeah, it doesn't mean that. You know, Macaulay Culkin did have that pizza underground band, but otherwise. You couldn't get through the Child Star show without mentioning Macaulay Culkin, huh? <laughs> we have a website, patreon.com forward slash double feature. And a big thanks to... Charles Crawford, Ben Ecker, Brad Parker, and Yoakam Vernon. Patreon.com forward slash double feature. I want to congratulate us on two things. Three things. Uh, pairing these movies together. It's first, congratulations. 
Second congratulations is having a conversation about whatever happened to baby Jane without spending the entire conversation about how, quote, they hated each other in real life, which is awesome. And then uh, third, third pat on the back, our third congratulations is for our something new show uh, next time. Oh, we did something old this time. We have to do something new next time. Yeah. And uh, our pair is amazing in a way. Um, we're going to pair um, Malignant, the James Wan movie that like just came out. It's a new movie. And then we're going to pair that with Lee Winnell's Upgrade, which is a techno horror movie, you know, about how like technology will eventually kill us all if we're not careful because like AI is inherently dangerous. But, but this is the first time in the history of cinema that two people have looked at James Wan and Lee Winnell completely separately. And this is something that's really important to me, um, but I'm not going to tell you why until next time on the show. Is it the first time in the history of cinema? That's a name one other time. I don't know. Maybe what, the French did it. What do you mean? Maybe the French did it. Watch more fucking film. All right. Bye.